You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. In just a few moments, I'm going to be preaching a message entitled, A Just Man, Every Family's Dream. A Just Man, Every Family's Dream. And of course, this is a part of this series entitled, Pulling Together, How to Develop and Maintain God's Harmony in Your Home. I do not believe it is merely a coincidence that this morning's topic is what it is. On being a just man, literally that means being a righteous man, a man of moral purity, a man of faithfulness, fidelity in the home. I don't think it's any mistake that this message comes on this morning. Now, uh, before we stand together and before we read the one verse which is our scripture text for this morning, let me uh, take just a few moments to tell you, I, I know some of you have uh, come to me even this morning and said, Brother Tom, we heard you on the radio. Brother Tom, we saw uh, you during the interview on television or we read something that you said in the newspaper. How do you feel about what's happened in the White House and what's happening to our nation? And so I want to take a few moments this morning just to tell you what your pastor is saying to others. I think that's very important for you to know what I am saying to others so that uh, no matter what you read, you'll know at least what's in your pastor's heart. Let me begin by saying that I have not read the Star Report, nor do I intend to read the Star Report. I don't need to do that. And... Uh, by the way, let me say that you do not need to do that. You know enough already to know that there are significant problems. Uh, before you lambast Kenneth Starr, let me remind you that this was a report he was asked to give and a report that he delivered to the Congress in secrecy. The fact that it is available to you was not his decision. It was the decision of uh, Congress. But um, things which are of salacious nature which I'm sure were felt necessary to be placed there to corroborate witnesses, are things that you don't need to read. You don't need to hear about them. You don't need to read about them. You are a product of what you think about. Garbage in, garbage out. And the fact that it involves our president doesn't make it any more appropriate for you to read than if it was Pulp Fiction and you bought it for a few dollars off of the newsstand. And so I want to encourage you, instead of reading it, you just pray for our nation and you just pray for our president. And uh, I needed to say that because there are a lot of people who think that the fact that it involves a political figure somehow legitimizes a dive into a sewer, and it does not. It is tragic, it is terrible, uh, but I would encourage you to use your mind and your thoughts and your time for better things. I know that the, the media is just eaten up with this, and I understand that, but I want to encourage you to use judgment and discretion in this matter and give yourself time to pray about it. Secondly, you need to know that uh, in my personal estimation, as I have prayed for our president, I pray that God will give him the wisdom to step down. Now, that's my prayer. I really believe it would be in the best interest, his best interest. I believe it would be in his family's best interest. I believe it would be in our national 
best interest, and I personally believe it would be in the best interest of the world at large for our president to step down. Now, let me explain each of those statements. First of all, I believe it would be in his best interest. I've been counseling people now for 36 years, and I want to tell you that the kind of moral and spiritual and emotional and physical journey that our president is on is not something you get over with a simple statement or a series of simple statements. Uh, this is a, a long-term problem. It's not just a hiccup in this man's life. It's not just something that you say, oh, yeah, excuse me, forgive me, and that I believe all rights and privileges should be restored. Somebody said to me just this morning, don't you think that if you forgive people, that means they get, well, listen, forgiveness and restoration of all rights and privileges and responsibilities are two different things. If just saying I'm sorry and somebody saying I forgive you is what is necessary to have all rights and privileges restored, I know of a lot of criminals behind bars who are willing to do that. If, if they could just say, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to commit that crime and go free, they'd be thrilled to do that. But you see, sin has consequences. And it's important for us to understand that this, this man needs our prayers. He is in serious trouble. Serious trouble not just in his family, but with God. Serious trouble with the nation. And he does not need the distractions. It would be hard for a man with a nine-to-five job to get his life straightened up under circumstances like this, much less for a man who's got a job 24 hours a day uh, being president of the most powerful nation in the world. And so I think it would be in his best interest for him to step down. Obviously, it would be in the best interest of his family to step down. The humiliation, the embarrassment, the horror, the shame, he has brutally lacerated one who, in spite of what you may think of her feelings, has feelings. And can you imagine going to a state dinner or to some international meeting with your hand supposedly on the arm of your husband who stood at a marriage altar and before God and before men said, trust me, I have eyes for you only. I will be faithful to you always. And to go to those meetings and having other ladies look at her and other men look at her and in her mind she's thinking, they know I was not enough for my husband. They know he didn't have eyes only for me. They know of his dalliances, the humiliation, the shame. And here again, the president's main responsibility is getting his life and his family's life back together. He does not need the distraction of, the, of governing this nation. He needs to focus his attention upon getting his life and his family back together. And I can't imagine how his daughter must feel who somehow has seen that her father was willing for someone almost her age to be involved in fulfilling the particular indulgences of a father who believes he's above God's law, above man's law, above the laws of this nation, and a father who does not know what it means to keep his word. And so it is important, it is important, I think, for his welfare, for his family's welfare. He should say to them, I'm stepping down. I'm going to give my attention to rebuilding my relationship with God, rebuilding my relationship with my family. I also believe he ought to step down as a matter of our national best interest. Especially in the best interest of the youth of this nation who need to know that you cannot sin with impunity. That sin has consequences. And there are these people who say, oh yes, but you forgive sin and then you just go on. Well, let me just tell you something. 
Sin, forgiven sin, still has its consequences. People keep throwing up David. Apparently, you haven't read the rest of David's story following his sin. The murder, the problems, the death of a child, a, a nation torn asunder, a, a rebellious son. You, you apparently haven't read what happened as a consequence of David's sin. Yes, he could be restored to fellowship with God, but sin has consequences. And our youth and everybody across this nation needs to know that. That sin has consequences. Somebody said, well, what about Moses? Well, Moses sinned in the wilderness. You remember he struck the rock the second time? Was he forgiven? Certainly he was forgiven. God forgave him. Did he get to go in the promised land? Certainly not. He forfeited that privilege by his sin. And our nation, we need to learn that you cannot sin without having severe difficulties afterwards. And the issue is not being forgiven. The issue is that sin has consequences. And we do not need to be governed at this moment by an individual who is willing at the same time he is conducting, apparently, at the same time he is conducting the business of this nation to indulge himself in his own gratifications. That's not the kind of leadership that we need. We need somebody who has every capacity to focus upon the leadership of this nation because he has no problems in his life or has no problems in his home or in his heart and is not creating problems for other people. It is in our national best interest for our president to step down. And by the way, let me just say that I think it's in the best interest of this world for our president to step down. Now, I know that there are some countries, there have been newspapers in some countries, especially in Western Europe, which have said, oh, leave the guy alone. I mean, this is not all that bad. Well, listen, I admit that there are a few countries, especially in Western Europe, in which sexual dysfunction and marital infidelity are so common that they applaud them and laugh about them. But I don't want our history to be the same as their history because on at least two occasions, we've had to go bail out those people. And if we become like them, then people will have to come bail us out. Amen. You see, it's not just about the economy. People say, well, the economy is good. Is that the issue? Is that the only issue? Is it, is it okay to be corrupt as long as you get what you want? Absolutely not. It is not just about the economy. It is about what's happening to our nation, what's happening to the moral character of our nation. And we will forfeit the right to lead in any fashion. Somebody said, well, but things are going so well. You know why you think things are going so well? Because these headlines have us so riveted that you just don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. The rest of the world is falling apart. Things haven't improved in Haiti. Things are a mess in the Balkans. Russia's got problems beyond what we even can conceive of. China's got problems. Southeast Asia is roiling in turmoil. North Korea now has problems that you, I mean, you can only imagine the kind of problems. There's nuclear proliferation. Africa is just in a seething boiling pot of AIDS and genocide and, and all kinds of difficulties in this world. Economies are going south. Health is going south. There's famine in countries. And this is not the time to have a leader who looks at other leaders and tries to solve their problems when he can't solve his own problem. We need, listen, leadership is a matter of confidence. And confidence is built upon keeping your word. Keeping your word. 
You say, well, I don't think America believes that. Apparently, we have just come not to believe that because as I recall, President Clinton's immediate predecessor forfeited his second term as president, many would say, primarily because he broke confidence with the American public. He said, read my lips, no more taxes. Then when there was a tax, we said, we don't want a man who doesn't keep his word. And so we elected President Clinton. Leadership is a matter of confidence. And so I would say that you need to know my heart that I am praying that our president for his best interest, for his family's best interest, for our nation's best interest, for the world's best interest, that our president will step down now from that position. I really believe that, and I want to encourage you to pray for him. One can only imagine the difficulties he must be facing. But please pray for him. Pray for our nation. Weep over our nation. We are sick. Somebody said, well, he represents the average man. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. How dare you say that to be the average man, you've got to be unfaithful, that you've got to have your mind in a sewer, that you've got to destroy the lives of other people, that you've got to break faith with people. No, that is not the average man. There are millions of men who keep their promises, who are faithful to their wives, who don't swim in the sewer of pornography, who don't bother other people's family. No, that is not the norm in this nation. And I want to encourage you I want to encourage you to pray for our president, but pray for our sick, sick, sick nation. We need a spiritual awakening in this nation, and only God can bring that to us. Now, having said that, let me ask you to open your Bible to the 20th chapter of Proverbs. Stand with me. The text this morning for this message, a just man, every family's dream, every child, every wife, every grandchild, son or daughter, desires more than anything to have as head of the home a just man. And that word which is translated here, just, is a man, is a word which means literally a righteous man, a man who's right with God and right with others, a pure-hearted man. And I'm going to ask you to read aloud with me verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 20. Let's read it together. The just man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Let's read it again. The just man walks in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray trusting that your Holy Spirit this morning would speak to our hearts, encourage us, change our lives. Oh, Lord, keep us on the altar of prayer as we pray for our nation. Father, I do pray that our president would have the wisdom for his sake, for our sake, for his family's sake, for the world's sake. I pray that he would have the wisdom to step down from his position. And, Lord, I pray that as a nation you would bring to us a great spiritual awakening. But apart from that, Heavenly Father, I know that awakenings begin with individuals, folks like us here in this auditorium this morning. And so, Father, I pray you would rivet our attention to your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to open our hearts to what you would say to us in these next few moments. And I pray it in the wonderful and matchless and saving name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the master of our lives. 
Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Keep your Bible open to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, as we think together this morning about a just man who happens to be, I believe, every family's dream. Don't you want a husband who is faithful to you, who only has eyes for you, who loves you with all of his heart? A husband who has your best interest in mind with everything that he does? Don't you want a daddy who loves your mother? Don't you want a daddy who, who has your best interest in mind, a daddy who is faithful, a daddy who is a man of convictions, not just beliefs, but a man whose life is steered by the convictions which have come from the Word of God? Don't you want a daddy and a husband who can be trusted not only when he is in your presence, but when he is outside your presence? Not only when he is in Oklahoma City, but when he is clear around the world someplace. Maybe he's, he's on TDY. Maybe he's flying a plane or working someplace with the AWACS division out here, and he's over there in Turkey, or he's over there in some other foreign country. Don't you want a father and a husband you can trust to be faithful and have eyes only for you and love God and serve God and care for you and pray for you? Of course you do. A just man, a righteous man, is every family's dream. Now, I want to answer three questions with the message this morning. And you have your Bible open there, so let's just look at these questions. First of all, how does a man become just? How does a man become just? That is righteous. And in the Bible, when we read this word righteous, it means a man in whose heart has been set right with God and with others, a man who is pure, a man who's faithful, a man who strives for holiness. It doesn't mean a man who has no sin in his life but he is a man who constantly brings his life before God and asks God to deal with what's in his heart. So how does a man become a just man? Let me just mention a couple of things this morning very hurriedly, and then we'll move on to the next point. First of all, a man becomes just by conversion. You see, by his conversion, he becomes just in reality, not just in his reputation, but in reality. Sometimes we read about various uh, levels of motivation for doing what we do. We say, for instance, level one in motivation, I do what I do because I get reward or punished, and so I'm going to do those things for which I get rewarded, and I'm going to stop doing those things for which I get punished. This is just elementary kind of uh, uh, motivation for doing what's right. You know, parents say to a child, ah, don't do that. If you do that, you're going to get a spanking. Or, oh, that was good. Here, let me give you another one of these because that was so good. Reward and punishment, all right? That's the, that's the basic level of motivation. But then there is a second level of motivation. This kind of motivation says, I'll do what's right because others are looking and others are resp I'm responsible for others. Well, I don't want to do that. A man told me one time, he said, you know, he said, I, I really would like to do these things. He said, I'd like to have some of these uh, uh, cable movies in my, or, or videos in my home and watch them. But he said, I don't do that because of my kids. He said, I don't want my kids to see it. And so what he's saying here is, I do what I do because I have a sense of responsibility. Normally, I just like to do this. And what he's intimating is, if they weren't here, I would do it. But I, I'm behaving myself because I've got a big job. That's what's so horrendous about what our president has done. You would think that with a job that size, he would live above board and, and he would not jeopardize everything with improper behavior. But, but you see, level two motivation says, I'll do this because I'm responsible for other people. Well, that's better than level one, but that's not the best motivation for doing what's right. The best motivation, level three, is that you do what you do as a matter of conviction. 
audience has nothing to do with it. You do it, what's right, whether everybody's looking or whether no one's looking. You do what is right, whether you're at home or whether you're on the other side of the globe. You do what's right because, as a friend of mine says, right is always right, wrong is always wrong, it's never wrong to do right, it's never right to do wrong. And so you do it as a matter of deep, deep conviction, which is the highest level of motivation for right and wrong. Now, how do you arrive at that point? You arrive at that point by conversion. That is, by letting God change your heart. It's by conversion that you become just in reality. Right down in your heart. The Bible says that we're all sinners. We're not just naturally good. We are naturally bad. You take away the restraints of society, the restraints of law, the restraints of our environment, there is within our heart the desire to do bad. We are sinful. That's why the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all like sheep. We've all gone astray, the Scripture says. So how do we deal that? We bring this sinful heart of ours, and some of you will want to do that this morning in this service at the invitation time. You'll want to say, look, I have never trusted in the Lord Jesus to bring cleansing and forgiveness of my sin. I've never trusted in him to take this old heart of mine and give me a new heart. We speak of being born again. That's what Jesus called it. Not just physical birth, but he said, born of the Spirit from on high. And so I bring my life, I bring my heart before the Lord, and I say, Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I am trusting you to be my Savior. Because you see, the wages of sin is death. And to pay those wages, either I have to die or someone else who has not sinned must die. I die for my own sins. I spend eternity separated from you. But you, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross as a substitute for me. You paid for my sins because you didn't have sins of your own to pay for. And so I'm going to trust you to be my Savior and to be the Lord of my life. And the Bible says a miraculous thing takes place when you trust Jesus. Old things pass away. All things become new. You literally become a new creation in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just straighten up your old heart. He gives you a new heart. And so it is by conversion that you become just in reality, right down in the core of your being. And then it is by your conduct that you become just in reputation. After you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Lord then begins to guide you. He begins to give you leadership. He brings conviction to you. And the Bible says that if you can sin and be undisciplined for your sin, that you are an illegitimate child of God. You're not truly God's child. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. That if you can just sin, and there's no discipline for that sin that you are illegitimate as a child of God because the Scripture says this, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Don't you do that for your own children? If you love them, you invest yourself in them, you stop what you're doing, you take time to discipline them, to chasten them. Why? Because you want them to live longer. You want them to live more properly. You want them to behave correctly, and so you discipline them. Well, if you, as an earthly father, would do that for your child, how much more the heavenly father does that for his? So you become a part of the family of God by trusting Jesus, and then the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, begins to guide you into all truth, and you become just by reputation through the way you behave. Everybody in this auditorium has heard that statement. I'm sorry, I can't hear you, because what you do speaks more loudly than what you say. And so it doesn't make any difference how many times you say that things are right in your life. The question is, are you behaving as a man 
who is faithful and just and righteous and right with God and striving for a holy life. And so the answer to this question, how does a man become just in the first place? By conversion, and then after that, what you are impacts what you do by your conduct, all right? Now, there's a second question then that must be answered. If, if your conduct is so important, how does a man behave justly? You say, Brother Tom, God has this standard up here. He wants us to be just. All right, how does a man behave justly? Well, the Scripture tells us. It says here, a just man walks in his what? In his integrity. We get our word integer, which means a whole number, a complete number. We get our word integer from that same root for integrity. It means here is a person who is complete. If there are flaws in his life, then he is moving to deal with those. He's not a person who has serious moral problems which God is not dealing with and he is not dealing with. He is striving to be right in the eyes of God as well as in the eyes of others. And so let me just mention a couple of things. You see, integrity requires, listen to this, integrity requires determination. You men, you will not be men of integrity just by your nature. You won't just fall off a turnip truck one day and be a man of integrity. That will not happen to you. You see, if you're going to be a man of integrity in this world, and we've seen the glaring incident here in the White House, if you're going to be a man of integrity, you have to make up your mind that this is serious business. What does it say of Daniel, who was faced with all kinds of temptation? I mean, he was tempted to forsake everything he had learned in Jerusalem as a young boy growing up. What does it say of Daniel? It said that Daniel, listen, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He made up his mind. It was a matter of determination. I think you men ought to go to your wives, if you're married, your children, if you have children, and you ought to say, listen, I can't undo the past of my life, but I want to tell you that deep down within the very core of my being, I have a determination to be a just man, a man of integrity, and I want you to help me to be the kind of father, the kind of husband I need to be. If you see anything in my life that in any way says that I am less than a man of integrity, I want you to tell me about it because that is my heart's desire. I am determined to be a man of integrity. You need to make up your mind. Integrity comes, first of all, from determination. It requires determination. But notice this, integrity also resists deterioration. A lot of people who start well don't finish well. They start well and they finish poorly. What happened to them? They didn't resist deterioration. Downtown Oklahoma City, as long as I know they've been working on the streets down there and especially the bridges, I think those work crews were out there before we had streets. <laughs> Back in aught six, when there were just mud roads, we had the trucks ready to work on our street. Why are they doing that? Because over a period of time, those bridges began to experience what? Deterioration. Those roads become deteriorated. They, you don't just lay the pavement down and say, that's it for life. No, they have deterioration. They experience deterioration. Listen, so does your life. So does your life. There are things in this world which would eat away at you. 
There are people who will attempt to compromise you and to encourage you to compromise your convictions. The world eats away. That's why the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the Bible also says we are to be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing, resisting deterioration. And how do you do that? You're doing that this morning. How do you do that? You're going to do that in Sunday school. How do you do that? You do that when you open your Bible every day and say, Lord, today, before I go to work, before I go to school, I want to read your word because I realize I'm going to face things. I'm going to face temptations. I'm going to be tempted to look at things, to talk about things, to see things which are not good for me if I want to live a holy and just life, if I want to be a man of integrity. I'm going to be tempted to compromise. And so this is what's involved in renewing. You see, it requires determination. But integrity resists deterioration. Which brings me to the last statement I want to make this morning, and really an answer to this question. How can a man bequeath a just legacy? How can a man bequeath, in other words, leave to others a just legacy? It says, just man walks by his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. So how can a man bequeath, how can you leave to those who come behind you a just legacy? I want to mention three things here this morning. First of all, you do this by your interest. That is your interest in your family, your interest in your wife, your interest in your sons and daughters and in your grandchildren, your interest in their welfare. Oh, no, no, listen, don't say this. Don't say, well, you know, they just get up to a certain age, they're just going to be whatever they're going to be. And I guess my job's over. Your job is never over. Now, that doesn't mean that the way that you respond as a child when the children are home is the same way you respond when they're out of the home and married and off with their own families. But let me just tell you something, friends. It's not over till it's over. And your family needs to know. Your children need to know. Your wife needs to know that you are interested in her. You're interested in them. And in the way they live, the things they watch, the things they read, the business deals they get involved in, the company they keep, the people that they run with at school, you are interested in them. That's why I said last week that it is important for you to, to confront the kind of behavior that would destroy one of your family members. You can't just pass it off and say, well, that's not my child, or that's just a cousin, or that's just a son, and he's grown up. No, no, no. You see, responsibility requires that you confront the kind of behavior that would destroy your family. Someone should have confronted our president long ago. You know why I say that? Because people knew about this long ago. And so if you want to leave a legacy of justice, you're going to have to get intimately, deeply, actively interested in your family members. They need to know that you care whether they tell the truth or not. They need to know that you care what kind of dealings they have in business, whether you're taking money under the table or whether you just do it because you say that's the way everybody does it. They need to know. Your parents need to know. They should care about it, and you should care about them. You should be interested in other people. You bequeath a legacy. They, they need to, they, when, when you are buried, somebody needs to be there at that casket that says, you know, old dad, he did everything he could to help us grow up right, didn't he? He did everything he could to help us believe the Bible. He did everything he could to help us live by the book. 
Say this about Dad. He really cared about the way we live. They ought to be able to say that. Your interest in them. Secondly, your impact on them. Your impact on them. They need to see you being a just man. They don't need to just hear lectures from you about being just and righteous and holy and a man of integrity. They need to see you in the pit, in the fire, being just, being righteous. I have a friend who builds homes. His son said to me one day, he said, I've watched my daddy take a bath financially on more than one home. I've watched him eat homes and lose money so he could keep his word. Boy, that made an impact on that boy, didn't it? To see you come up to a promotion and turn it down, Dad, because it's going to take you away from your family. Right? To see you offered something really sweet and watch you say, I'm going to choose in the best interest of my family and I'm going to be, I'm going to be a man who will not compromise. That wouldn't be good for us. Now, that makes an impact on a son or a daughter. For your wife to hear you say, sweetheart, I'd just rather us turn that television program off. I'd rather us just not subscribe to that. I, I'd rather us just not get involved in that. Sweetheart, if that paper lands on our doorstep that's got that report in it, would you just take it and trash it? And sweetheart, I want to tell you, which I've said to my wife, I'm not going to download that thing on the Internet. I'm not going to even turn it on and not download it but read it. I want you to tell you my eyes are for you. My thoughts are for you. the impact that that makes upon your family. And then finally, by the influence you have that will live long after you. I had a very interesting thing happen to me when I was in my first year of pastoring. I was only 18 years of age, fresh out of high school, first year of college. I was in a little town, Warren, Arkansas. And when I say little town, Warren is a little town. It's the home of the Miss Pink Tomato Contest, if that gives you an idea about the things that really excite people in Warren, Arkansas. Dumas is worse. They have the Turtle Derby in Dumas every year. You know, they watch paint rust, I think, in the meantime. But I'll tell you about this. Warren, Arkansas is the home of some of the finest salt-of-the-earth people that you'll ever meet in your life. My granddaddy had lived there from a young man, took his bride there, was a plain dirt farmer, had been county judge for many, many years in Warren, Arkansas. Raised 11 children, not a cull in the bunch, people who love Jesus. I mean, he was a man of integrity. Well, when I went to pastor this little mission church in Warren, Arkansas, it was really handy for me because my granddaddy's farm was nine miles away out in the country. And he was still, I mean, he was an older man, but he worked until he was 95. We took his Studebaker truck away from him because he drove it into the side of a boxcar. He just didn't see it. He said, I thought that the sky had turned dark and just drove on. And um, so we took it away from him. And the next day, he got his tractor and hooked a potato wagon to him, loaded it with sweet potatoes, and drove nine miles back in the town. He said, you're not going to shut me down. And he's the one who told me, son, he said, there, there's two things that will never hurt you. He said, age will not hurt you, growing older. And he said, work will never hurt you, working hard. He said, now, I'll tell you what, thinking about either one of those will kill you. <laughs> but doing them won't hurt you. I had a lot of aunts, his daughters, uncles in that area. So I went down there to pass that little church, and 
One day I was in the kitchen of their house eating, and happened to be three of, three of my aunts were there, my Aunt Emily, my Aunt Mary Bell, and my Aunt Berta Lee. They weren't big on names back then. And uh, so they were talking. And one of them came over to me. I could see her drying her hands on dish towels. She had wrapped around her waist. She's drying her hands. She said, now, Tommy, don't you mess up this family name. She said, I want to know that even though you're 18 years old, you could go into Warren today and go to the bank and borrow almost any amount of money that you wanted on your grandfather's reputation. She said, don't you mess that up. You think I didn't hear what she was saying? What was she telling me? She was saying that I was being blessed after my grandfather. Blessed after, as I followed after him, but more than that, even after he died, his goodness, his justice, his integrity, his righteousness blessed me. Do you know what I think is a crying shame about what's happened in the White House? You see, the Bible says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And because our president represents our nation and what people think of him, they think of us. Our president has not left us a legacy of righteousness and goodness and justice and integrity. He has left us a legacy that we will have to overcome in order to have a good name. If America ever has a good name in the world again, it will be in spite of, not because of, what he has done. And you see, your children ought not to have to overcome your life and your experiences and your choices and your dalliances and your habits and your hobbies and your tantrums in order to have a good name. You ought to leave them a legacy of a just man a good name, and a just man, every family's dream. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting that in this moment your Holy Spirit would bring us to attention. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in a few moments men would come to this altar, and whether they're here by themselves or whether they're young or old or whether they bring a wife with them and kneel here or children, that these men would come and at this altar they would say, Dear God, I want to have a good name. I want to be a just man. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would purpose in their heart that they would not defile themselves. And then they would begin to resist the deterioration of this world by their study of your word, by Sunday school, by worship, by getting in the Bible, by being in these ministries, which will help them grow. They will resist by being accountable. They will resist the world's eating away at the fabric of their heart. Lord, I pray you'd bring to this altar those who will trust you and those who join the church. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed all over this auditorium. In a few moments, we're going to stand. This is your invitation to come to Jesus. I do believe men ought to line this altar and say, Oh, dear God, I cry out to you for awakening in our nation. I pray for our president. I pray, Heavenly Father, that I will be a just man, a righteous and holy man with the balance of my life. You men ought to come, whether you come by yourself or come with your partner and kneel here and say, Dear God, I purpose in my heart to do that. I believe there are people here to whom the Lord is speaking about joining this church. Would you do this? When we stand in a few moments, would you make your way to this aisle? Find one of these counselors who will be standing here and say, Look, we want to join this church. I want to join this church. And they'll talk with you and pray with you in our counseling area here. It'll be a blessed experience for you and for our church 
and I would encourage you to do that this morning. If you've made a decision in earlier services, such as those who were baptized, and we've not introduced you to our church just yet, so I'm going to ask you to come as well and be seated over here to your right where it says seating for new members. And then it could be that you say, Brother Tom, I know why I'm struggling with this whole issue. It's because I'm not a just man in reality. I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. I've been a religious person. But I never have just repented and said, God, I'm a sinner. And I know the only way of salvation is by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone is my Savior. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, either he's lying or he's telling the truth. If he's lying, he can't save anybody. But if he's telling the truth, the way to God is through Christ because Jesus alone died on the cross to pay the wages of sin, which is death. And I would encourage you to come find one of these counselors and say, look, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's stand to our feet. Father in heaven, I pray that all across this auditorium you would prepare the hearts of men and women, young and old alike, to come to this altar to say yes to you this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As the choir begins singing, you join them. Quickly make your way to this altar, dear God. I'm saying...